Matthew chapter 17, verse 14, we see a father kneeling before Jesus, making a request for his son. His son is suffering from a disease. And the father prays in front of Jesus. He says, Jesus, please heal my son. In Matthew chapter 20, we see another parent, a mother, and she kneels before Jesus to make a request as well. Let us go to Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, to see what her request was. Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. If you could stand for the reading of God's most precious word, amen. The holy word of God reads, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared for by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You may be seated. Today, we are going to talk about true greatness. True greatness. Here in this text, we are towards the end of Jesus's ministry, and Jesus is traveling through the Decapolis area of North Palestine. And he's making his final journey back to Jerusalem with his disciples. In verses 17 through 20, Jesus has just shared with his disciples the horrible events that will soon happen to him. Verse 17 says, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, 
And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. So Jesus has just told the disciples why he's going to Jerusalem and when he's in Jerusalem, what's going to happen to him. And what's interesting is, is that directly after asking, after telling them of this horrible death that he will face, we see that the mother of two disciples kneels in front of him to make a request. And and it appears that she doesn't even appear to be concerned about what Jesus said. She hears the words of Jesus, and instead of having a follow-up question to say, Jesus, why are you going to be flogged? Why are you going to be mocked? Why are you going to be mistreated? Instead, this mother gets on her knees, and she she makes a, a request that has absolutely nothing to do about what Jesus said. And at first glance, at first glance, it appears that this, this mother is, is, is uncompassionate towards Jesus. At first glance, it appears like she, she doesn't care anything about Jesus. But as we take the, the, the whole gospel narrative and keep that in mind, we see that that's not the case at all. This mother really did love Jesus. The Bible says that she is the the wife of Zebedee. Zebedee was a a fisherman, according to Mark chapter 120. And from reading the the account in Mark, we we have reason to believe that this man named Zebedee was a, a wealthy fisherman. For the Bible says that he not only hired his sons to work for him, but he also had other hired servants. In Mark, we read that that Jesus comes along and he he tells two disciples to follow him. The Bible says that they drop everything that they have and they follow Jesus. These two disciples were the sons, was the son of Zebedee, which means that they most certainly probably had inherited some wealth. But not only does the disciples drop everything to follow Jesus, the Bible tells us that this mother dropped everything to follow Jesus. In fact, she is one of the women who is constantly following Jesus around to minister to him. She's going from town to town. She forsook forsook the, the wealth that her and her husband may have occurred. In fact, she may have even left her husband. Not left as in divorce, <laughs> but, but left as in not been around. Because the Bible does not mention Zebedee following Jesus closely. So this mother was not uncompassionate towards Jesus. In fact, she loved Jesus. In fact, as we read the rest of the gospel narrative, we'll find out that this mother was at the foot of the cross when Jesus Christ died. She was one of the few followers of Christ who actually witnessed his death on the cross. So as we read this text, we see that she wasn't uncompassionate. That wasn't the reason why she interrupted Jesus. 
But, but it appears that, that, that she did have a motive. She did have a motive. In Mark chapter 10, verse 35 through 36, I believe that we find the answer to her motive. As we see Mark giving a, a, another side or a different perspective of the account. And in Mark's account, we see that there are a number of different things that look different. Number one, Mark reveals the sons of this mother is the disciples James and John, in whom Jesus has nicknamed the sons of thunder. In the gospel account, according to Matthew, we don't see the son's name mentioned. We just see two disciples. But there's another difference in this account. The second difference that we see in, Mark, and see in Mark's account is that James and John are actually before Jesus making the request that Matthew said that the mother made. It says that James and John was the one who asked Jesus, could they be the ones to sit on his right and left side in the coming of his kingdom? Matthew's account doesn't say that. It says that their mother did. Now, this uh, appears to be a, a contradiction. Mark says that James and John asked the question. Matthew says that their mother asked the question. And it appears to be a, a contradiction. But I believe that there are, are two ways to see this. There, there are two scenarios which could, could, could bring these, these gospel accounts together and, and, and kill any suspicion of contradiction. It is possible that they either all went to Jesus and asked this question together or that they discussed it among themselves first, and then the mother went to Jesus and was directly followed by James and John. And I believe that that's what we see here happening in these two texts. I believe that the mother goes to Jesus, and she asks Jesus, or she makes this request from Jesus, because her sons have just told her to do so. And after seeing the mother talk to Jesus, the sons go up behind and say, wait a minute, Jesus, we, we want, we, they took ownership, we really want to be at your right and left side. Could you make it happen? So what we see here are two ambitious followers of Jesus Christ, seeking personal fulfillment, not just through Christ, but through their own chance at greatness. We see two followers of Christ seeking to be personally fulfilled, have personal fulfillment, not just in Christ, but in them being considered great as well. James and John wanted to be great. They wanted to be viewed by the other disciples as, as great men. And the mother wanted that honor for them as well. Let's look at Matthew chapter 19, verse 28 through 29. And we'll understand this pericope better as we understand it in this, in this whole context. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 28 and 29, we see Jesus making a declaration. He has just told, the, the, he has just encountered the, the rich young ruler. And now we see him saying these words to Jesus after this encounter. 
And it says, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So Jesus just have a, has an encounter with a rich young man in which the rich young man was not willing to give up everything to follow Christ. Christ then tells the disciples about this beautiful picture of, of when his kingdom comes. He tells his disciples that when his kingdom comes, that they will sit on 12 thrones next to his glorious thrones and they will judge all of Israel. What a great honor. I wonder just how they felt as they found out that they will sit on 12 thrones in Christ's kingdom next to him, judging everyone. So then we see James and John plot. They say, wait a minute. We don't want to just sit on 12 thrones. <laughs> they go and get their mother. They say, Mom, go ask Jesus for us. Can we be the ones to sit on the left and on the right-hand side of them? So the mother goes and she kneels knowing that Jesus has compassion all throughout the gospel. He had compassion on people who kneeled before him and made requests. And she says, Jesus, Jesus, can, can little John John and JJ, can they, can they sit next to you? Can they sit next to you? I believe what we see here is pride. Pride in the hearts of James and John. They wanted to be viewed as great. But you know, if we be all the way real this morning with each other, I think that that is a, a natural human desire. I think that in, in, in every human heart, at some point in time, there is a desire to be great. That every human being has a, a struggle with this pride as they want to be seen, as we want to be seen by others as great people. As a, as a, as a great mother, as the greatest mother, the greatest father, the, the greatest preacher, the, the greatest worker. There is a desire to be viewed by others in a light of greatness. The problem with their ambition, the problem with this desire is that it is a prideful desire. It is a, a sin, and this sin is so difficult to break because our culture defines greatness differently than God. Our culture tells us that it's okay to do things to be praised by man. And Jesus in this text is going to show us that we must not pursue a secular example of greatness, but, but rather we must pursue the example of greatness that glorifies God, that, that pleases God. 
Pursuing personal greatness. Pursuing personal greatness will ultimately lead to our destruction. First Peter, verse 5 and 5 says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The problem with this ambition to be great, to be seen as great by man, is, is that it is a, a selfish ambition which, which only leads to us being glorified. And when our hearts are in this condition, we are sinning by committing the sin of pride. And the Bible says that God opposes the pride. It means that God is against those who are prideful, but he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to those who see themselves as low, to those who do not want to make a great name for themselves, but rather make the name of God great. We see this as a theme all throughout the biblical narrative. We see this as a theme. We see that God opposed Satan when Satan was in heaven. The Bible says that God kicked Satan out of heaven because his heart, his heart, in essence, was filled with pride. We see this in the Garden of Eden. As God opposed Eve and, and Adam for eating off the, 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 the tree that they were not supposed to eat off, going against the, the commandment of God. And they, they did it because Eve was tempted by Satan when Satan told him that in eating this fruit, you will be like God. You will be great. We see this in Daniel with King Nebuchadnezzar. As he stands up and, and looks over his kingdom, and as he's looking over his whole kingdom in his heart, he says, look what I have done. I'm so great. And the Bible says that, Dan, that, that God cursed King Nebuchadnezzar. And instead of allowing him to eat from the food of his kitchen, which was prepared by his servants, he ended up eating from his own backyard, eating grass. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And we see this themed all throughout Scripture. We see that Jesus opposed the proud. We see that through the ministry of Jesus, Jesus constantly went to the Pharisees. And when he talked to the Pharisees, he didn't talk to them with, with grace. No, he, he talked to them with judgment as he knew that their hearts were, were full of pride, that they just wanted to be seen as great in the eyes of everyone. If we are going to satisfy God, our desire must be to make sure that our motive in life that our motive in all of our actions is not to be seen as great by people, but to be seen as great by God. I'm sure, confident, that the reason why there is so much disunity in the world, let alone in the church, is simply because 
people are pursuing personal greatness rather than pursuing a greatness that satisfies God. Look at verse 24 in your text. In the text, we see it says, And when the ten heard, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, and we'll stop right there. In that text, we see that the disciples, the other ten, are upset with James and John. The Bible uses a word here that we don't see too often in Scripture. Indignant. It says that the other ten were indignant towards the two. Indignant means to be displeased. So when the other ten saw that they had asked Jesus this question and the other two had came back to just hang out with them, they were upset. They were hotly displeased. They were hotly displeased. Now, as we look at this construction in the Greek, we we understand that this word indignant does not mean like they're just upset for the sake of being upset, but it's a, a a jealous displeasure. They were upset because... James and John asked the question before they could. They weren't upset because they asked the question. They were upset because each of them wanted to be the greatest. And each of them wanted to sit at the right and left side of God. And to sit at the right and left side of God is a, is a, is a great it's, a, it's not just a simple thing to ask. It's a great thing to ask because in the, during, during those times when, when a king would sit on his throne next to him, he would on his right side, he would have the second most powerful person in his kingdom sit next to him. And on his left side, he would have the third most important person in his kingdom sit next to him. So all of these disciples wanted to be the second and third most powerful person in the kingdom. And these disciples were indignant. They were upset. They were mad because they didn't have the chance to ask Jesus this question. Now, what's funny is, is as we read the gospel narrative, we quickly understand that this was not the first time that they had had this discussion. And in Mark chapter 9, verse 33 through 35, we read that the disciples are walking on the road and Jesus is ahead of them and they are arguing with each other about who is the greatest. Just like kids, right? You all remember when we were younger, how uh, guys, if we were playing basketball with another guy, we'll look at him and say, I'm better than you. I'm greater than you. And we'll go argue back and forth. I'm stronger than you. I'm, I'm, I'm mightier than you. I'm quicker than you. I'm faster than you. And we see that these disciples on the road, they often argued amongst themselves who was the greatest. They had a, the Muhammad Ali syndrome. Each in their own eyes. Proclaiming greatness. So we see that they're indignant, that they're kind of arguing once again. And even in our own homes, I believe that the the tension between a, a husband and wife many times points back to this subject. And just the most mundane arguments. As, as both of them are upset about something, it's really the argument of, of, of who's really the greatest. Maybe not in those terms or in that way, but, but in the same way, I, I'm right. <laughs> I'm right about this. No, I'm right about this. 
No, I'm right about this. You're never right about this. I'm always right about this. Even in our own homes, between married couples, there's this tension between who's the greatest. The husband wants the wife to see that he's the head and that he knows what he's doing. The wife wants the husband to see that she's smarter and that she knows her way around and she's able to take care of herself. There is a, a tension between who's the greatest. Day to day, we see this playing out on our, on our jobs. Everybody probably knows a coworker or someone who always tries to remind us of some accomplishment that they have. They seek opportunities to brag on themselves. Do you know anybody like that? They are quick to remind you of something that they did 10 years ago because they want you to see them as great. The conversation has nothing to do about what they accomplished, but somehow it comes up. You know, that's kind of like that one time. Remember that one time we was out fishing and I caught that big old fish and you went home and didn't catch fishes and my wife was proud of me, but you said yours was a little upset? Oh, that's kind of like that one time when the, when the boss called me in the office, and I didn't really have no idea that I was going to be praised by the boss. I mean, I'll be honest. I'm not saying this so that, to make you mad, but I'm just saying it kind of reminds me of that one time. People are always searching to be great in the eyes of others. Some people will lie to be great. They will lie to be great. We saw that recently in the news. Was that the balloon boy? Two parents come together and they construct the perfect plan to get their own reality TV show. Lied and said that their son was in a balloon. Got everybody running around looking for their son when the balloon comes down and the son is at home. And the poor child. <laughs> He just got tired of it. He looked at the camera and said, look, <laughs> mama and daddy put me up to this. <laughs> but they wanted to be seen as great. They wanted to be known. They wanted to be recognized. Our pursuit of greatness will end up in destruction. It ends up in, in arguments. It, it ends up in other people being indignant. <laughs> towards us. And some people, the way they handle their pursuit of greatness is by gossiping about others. They have a, a clique of two or three people. And they want to be seen in this clique as the informer. They want to be seen in this clique as the, the one who has all the knowledge or the one who knows everything or the one who's so well connected. So every time they, they go out to eat or they hang out, they got to tell and show everybody how much they know about other people. Ooh, girl, another friend of mine's told me. Because <laughs> they want to be seen as great in the eyes of their friends. And others, in order to feel great about themselves, they put down people they love. 
almost a reverse psychology. They, they tell the people that they, they love, they, they, they really nag at them constantly, day by day, in order that that person would submit to them and, and say, you know what, you're always right. I'm such a bad person. The pursuit of personal greatness does not please God. James said, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, you ask in vain, in order that you will basically spend it on your own passions. And that's exactly what we see happening in this text. What was causing fusion between these disciples? It was that they all had a desire to be great. And they asked to be great. But when they asked, they asked in vain. They asked so that they would receive the glory. And let's see how Jesus responds to, this, to their ambitions. Let's see what he says to these disciples. Let's look at verse 22. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? What does that mean? Jesus looks at him and he says, listen, you don't know what you're asking. This request that you have made is, is far greater of a request than, than you could ever imagine. And he asked them, can you drink of the, the cup that I am to drink of? Now, now, what does it mean, the cup? What is he talking about? Is he asking them to drink after him when he drinks something? No, he's not. The term cup was a common Old Testament metaphor for suffering, especially suffering that was caused by God's wrath. We read in Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17, uh, the prophet Isaiah said these words, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the, who have drunk to the drags, the bowl, I'm sorry, who have drunk the cup of staggering. The cup represents suffering. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's on his knees praying to God as he was getting ready to be taken uh, uh, captive by his enemies and eventually crucified, he, he prayed to the Lord. He said, let this cup pass from me. So the cup was, was the, the wrath of God. It was, it was suffering. And Jesus here responds to these ambitious disciples, and he asks them the question, are you able to drink from this cup? And that's point number one. Our, our, the, the first point in being great in the eyes of God is to suffer for his sake. If we want to be great in the eyes of God, we must be willing to suffer for his sake. Jesus said in the Gospels, if any man will follow after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, 
and follow me. If any man wants to be great, they must be willing to suffer for the sake of cross. That is a radical different approach than the world's approach. Jesus says, true greatness starts with suffering. True greatness starts with drinking from my cup. And he asks the disciples a question. He says, are you able to? Are you able to suffer for me? Will you suffer for me? And the Bible says that they looked at Jesus and they said, we are able. We are able to suffer for you. We are ready to suffer for you. Now, we know that that was half true and half false. We know that around the events of the cross, that all of the disciples left Jesus alone in his hour of suffering. So, they said we are able, but we know at first glance that they really weren't able. But after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see that they really were able. In Acts chapter 12, verse 2, we read about James being murdered, being beheaded by Herod. James was able to suffer for the cross. He lost his life for the sake of the gospel. All because the the ruler at that time wanted to impress the rest of the Jews who had not put their faith in Christ. And we know that John, just like James, he fleed from the scene of the cross. But but later on, uh, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see that he too decided to drink the cup of suffering. We read about how John was kicked off Uh, kicked out of Ephesus and and how he went to an island, the island of Patmos, and how he died, an old man separated from those who he loved because he chose to preach the gospel. If we truly want to be seen in the eyes of God, we must drink from the cup. Am I able? to drink from the cup? Am I willing to suffer for the sake of Christ? Philippians chapter 1 verse 29, Paul says this for, he says for, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Paul said, Church of Philippi, he said that suffering is not optional for a Christian. Suffering is not something that may happen for a Christian. He says that suffering is required of a Christian. He said it has been granted to you. It has been given to you just as Jesus suffered the call of a Christian to suffer. And James and John, they want to be great. They, they want to sit at the right-hand side of God, but are they willing to suffer? And we want heaven, but are we willing to suffer? Lady Amber has a, a friend named Candace, 
And Lady Amber was talking to Candace about sharing her faith and about being bold and the importance of, of us being courageous this year. And, and Candace said, well, I'm going to put this to the test. She went out and she saw a security guard and she went up to the security guard and she basically went to the security guard and said, I'm a Christian. Is there anything that I can pray for you about? Candace told Lady Amber that the security guard went completely off, went and got indignant. <laughs> he looked at her and said, do it look like I need prayer? <laughs> I'm tired of you Christians coming up to me, asking me, can I help you? Can I pray for you? Do it look like something wrong with me? And Candace said, what an introduction. <laughs> to sharing my faith. But at that moment, in the sight of God, God wasn't, his eyes wasn't on LeBron James. His eyes wasn't on a, a great governor or ruler. His eyes was on his child who was sharing her faith. And in the eyes of God, she was great. And may we seek to be great in the eyes of God and not in the eyes of man. In fact, the Bible tells us that, that as we are sharing our faith, as we are Christians, that we, are, that we should be sharing our faith, the Bible tells us that we should rejoice in moments like that. That we should be glad in moments like that, in moments that we are persecuted for what we believe, we should actually have a smile on our face and have joy in our heart. That's what Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is in heaven. To that 15-year-old girl who goes to school every day and who loves the Lord in this congregation and who is a conscious to her friends, constantly telling them about the love of Christ, I commend you and tell you that when they mock you, when they laugh at you, if they call you holier than thou, if they don't invite you to the birthday parties, don't be discouraged. Know that even though you may not be seen as great in the eyes of your peers, that your heavenly Father in heaven calls you great. And to that boy who's on the football team and doing practice, Right before practice, he, he listens to, to all the other boys brag about all the other dirty things that they've done. And he sits there, nervous, being afraid that he'll be mocked because of his, his stance to, to remain pure before the Lord. So that young man, I, I tell you, take the mocking, because in the eyes of the one who created you, he sees you as great. And even though, in the, 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 even though at that moment it, it hurts and it's painful, the Bible says that those who suffer for my sake, that's what Jesus said, 
they will reign with me. True greatness is the one who is able to look past people and their perceptions of you and look to God and know that he is pleased. The second point that Jesus shows us about true greatness is found in verse 25. It says that Jesus called to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Basically here, the second point is that in order to be seen as truly great in the eyes of God, not only must we suffer for him, but we must reject the secular example of greatness. Not only must we suffer for him, we must constantly reject the definition of greatness by the world. Jesus here points to, to the way that the Gentiles do things. The Gentiles were those who were non-Jews, those who were, were pagans. And Jesus is saying, listen, to a Gentile, greatness is a, a person who is seen as superior or, 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 great or better than, than everyone else. And this person then is waited on hand and foot. Jesus says, we as Christians, we must reject that definition. We must reject that definition. We must, we must look past that definition and see that, that true greatness is not us being pampered, but it's us looking almost too pampered. True greatness is not us lording things over the people who may work for us or who are beside us. It's us rejecting that, that whole notion. And it's us truly being a servant. In verse 26, he tells them, but whoever will be great among you must be a servant. That's the third thing that we see in this text. That if we truly are going to be great, we must see ourselves as a servant. Amen. It's interesting. Because as we talk about ministers, the word minister means to help. It means to serve. But as we look at our culture, and just the culture of human beings, ministers a lot of times end up being served. A minister is a person who helps, who, who serves, but in our culture, the ministers are put up on a pedestal and seen as someone who should be waited on hand and foot. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't take care of your ministers. <laughs> but I'm saying that you should take care of your ministers because you know that your ministers are willing to take care of you. We all are ministers of the gospel. And while certain people have been set aside and ordained and put in a specific position by God to, to serve the church in an official capacity, every single human being that is a Christian is a minister. Peter calls us priests. So every person who is called by God is called to be a servant. It's called to be someone, it's called to help someone else 
to serve someone else. Final point we see in this text. She says, but whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Our example of true greatness, it must come from us following Christ's example. We are truly going to be seen as great in the sight of God. We must suffer for him. We must reject the world's definition of greatness. We must see ourselves as ministers, but we also must follow Christ's example in servanthood. What's interesting about this text, and get your Bibles in your hand, I want to just show you something, is that the disciples, they had selective listening. Okay? This is not the first time that Jesus is telling them that true greatness is found in the one who is not first, but in the one that's last. This is not the first time. But what's even more interesting is that this is the theme of this whole portion or trip that they're on. Jesus constantly, as he was coming back from the Decapolis to Jerusalem, and we know that he stops at Jericho before he goes to Jerusalem, this is a theme. He has made up his mind to, to show them, to minister to them in this way. This is God's sovereignty as, he's, as Jesus wants to teach them before he leaves what true greatness is. Now look, look at the text and go up to verse 16. Matthew chapter 20, verse 16. Jesus has just told a parable about the laborers in the vineyard. In verse 16, to end the parable, the whole point of the parable, he says, so the last will be first, and the first last. <laughs> That's one. Go back up to chapter 19, verse 30. After Jesus tells them about the thrones that they're going to sit on, knowing that their head is going to be puffed up, <laughs> listen to what he tells them. But many who are first... <laughs> will be last, and the last will be first. Now, go over a little bit more and look at chapter 18. And take a look at verses 1 through 4. He says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. After hearing all of these sermons and parables, they still desire to be great. And I think what the text is showing us 
is the proclivity of the human heart to seek personal fulfillment in personal greatness. <laughs> that this was a real issue with the disciples. And if the Christian message is going to spread to the whole world, then Jesus has to get them to see that they are not being saved and having this revelation about who he is so that they can lord it over people and mistreat people. But they have been saved in order that they would become humbled by the grace of God and be exemplary to other people. And the best way that Jesus could show them this is not only by talking about it, but by demonstrating it. So what Jesus did to close this pericope, he says to the disciples, he said, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, Jesus points to his purpose and points to the cross and tells them, if you truly want to be great, you have to follow in my example. You have to be willing to give up some things. And we know that our precious Lord and Savior demonstrated true greatness when he put aside his rights. He put aside his rights. He who was fully God, he remained fully God, but he became fully human, not setting aside his divinity, but setting aside his right. He set aside his kingship, the, the majestic aura of his kingship, and he put on human clothes to demonstrate to us what true greatness was and is. And the Bible tells us that he became a ransom for many. And to the disciples, this would have been a sharp word for them because because a ransom in those days, the word that is used here, would have pointed their mind to a, a slave. A slave who has just been bought by a ransom or by a price. Jesus is saying that his blood buys us freedom. He says, if you want to be great, you must follow my example. You must completely empty yourself from the rights that you think that you deserve. Let's go back into pericope and look at verse 30. This is just before he says all that to them, he, he lets them know that this is his example. He says, you will drink of my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. Jesus told them earlier in the text, he says, listen, all along, he's showing them that he's the son of God, that when they see the father, they see him. But yet he shows that he is willing to submit to God the father. Well, if we want to be truly great, we must become a servant. We must be willing to give our lives so that others will be bought by the blood of Christ. And how do we do that? We do that by first seeing ourselves as slaves. We have to see ourselves as slaves. A Christian must see themselves as a slave. Not as a king, not as the one who runs the world, but as a, a slave. The thing about a slave is that a, a slave 
has to empty himself from personal ambition if he's going to survive as a slave. If a slave does not empty himself from his personal ambition, then he is going to be constantly at war with the master. And Christians, that's what we have to do. We have to empty ourselves from our personal ambition. When we come to Christ, we come to Christ and we say, Lord, not my will for my life, but your will. Before I was saved, I wanted to be a basketball player and play in the NBA. But Lord, I'm now saying that that is what I would like to do. But if you have something else for me to do, I will do it. We have to empty ourselves and become as slaves. That's what the rich young ruler was not willing to do. He still wanted to be who he wanted to be. We have to follow Christ's example. Example of a slave is exactly what Christ did. He was being held captive by the Father. That's why he went along healing people even when he was tired. That's why he fed the multitude even when he was exhausted. That's why he forgave people day by day, walking up to him saying, You're, you are forgiven. Christ saw himself as God's slave. He often told the disciples that I am not here to do my own will, but the Father's will. At home, do you see yourself as a slave? The slave of Christ. Do you get upset when you feel like your needs aren't being met and completely shut down? Or are you saying, I'm here to do the Father's will. I'm, I'm here to be an example of a servant. That takes humility. To be humble means to make yourself low. To make yourself low. So look at Philippians chapter 2. I'm just going to read this to you. We see that this is exactly what Christ did for us. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3. It says, do nothing, this is Paul, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even, on the, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God was most pleased by Christ's example, as Christ emptied himself in order that we may be saved. And God will be most pleased by our example if we are looking for ways to empty ourselves day by day in order that other people may see our good works but glorify God in heaven and say, what must I do to be saved? People will not come to love Jesus 
if we love ourselves more than we do Jesus. May God give us the grace to become slaves and to become servants and not to seek personal greatness for ourselves. Let us pray. Gracious Father, I pray that you would allow us to be humble in order that we would not be opposed by you. I pray, Father God, that you will be glorified in our lives day by day as we seek to, to serve our, our spouses, as we speak to, seek to serve our, our children, but as our children also seek to, to serve us. I pray, Father God, that you will be honored by, our emptying, our, by us emptying ourselves for your namesake. And we would not seek to be seen by man, but to be seen by you. That when we pray, that we would be not standing in a public place to be seen by man, but to, that we would go in our secret place. And when we fast, Father God, that we would not fast in order to, to boast or say, look what we have done, but that we will fast, Father God, in order to be seen by you. And when we give, that we will not give to be seen by man, but to be seen by you, Father God. I pray that your glory and that this vision of you seeing us will be what enables us to do great things for you. In Jesus' name, amen.